0: Uh, thank you for joining us for session number three, working with open access. Uh, so I'm hoping for some practical tips and tricks about how, how Libre uh, members are working with open access. My name is Sophie Venstrom, I come from Stockholm University Library. I'm gonna be your chair for this session. Um, and I uh, hope to be able to guide you uh, to a lot of questions as well because this is a, uh, a venue where we want to exchange knowledge. So let's uh, try to do that together. Um, we have four presentations in this session. Uh, and they will be not be presented in the order uh, that's in the program. We switched the last two ones because of some, some travel arrangements. Um, and uh, I will not be doing long presentations but rather just brief notes. Um, the speakers will then present themselves. There will be a short uh, opportunity for a question after each presentation, if you come up with something on the spot, Uh, but we will also leave some time at the end for some bigger questions. Uh, And also, uh, do respect your colleagues and speakers and try to uh, be in the room. Okay. Uh, The first presentation, it's a really interesting one. Uh, it's called Are We Plan S Ready? Level of Compliance at the University of Vienna. And presenting is Rita Pinhasy, sorry, my big not very good, it's gonna be over there. Uh, this presentation from the University of Vienna will tell their story about how they go through already existing open access contracts and workflows to ensure that they are compliant with Plan S. Here you will hopefully uh, get some takeaway messages on uh, opportunities and pitfalls while shaping the OA services of the future. Uh, do you want this microphone or, yeah?
1: Hello, can you hear me? Hi. So I'm Rita Pinhasen. and I'm doing this presentation on behalf of my colleagues as well, Brigitte Kromp and uh, Guido Blachel. And um, yeah, let's start about planners at the University of Vienna. So first of all, I would like to say a few words about the university. It was founded in 1365, and it is one of the oldest universities in the region, in Central Europe. And it is also pretty big. I think it is definitely the biggest brick and mortar university in this region again. We have 90,000 students enrolled, and close to 10,000 staff, of which about 7,000 are research staff. And they're active across all research fields. The library is spread across all over Vienna, and uh, we provide support for research services and including open access support. So the way it looks like at the university is that we have a dedicated open access office, and um, it's all centered around the researcher. So we have uh, we perform an advisory role about publishing open access, both outreach and also drop-in sessions. And we also run an institution repository. And we also have, a publishing fund which can be used for gold open access articles so authors can apply for the apcs to be covered but it cannot be used for hybrid uh, articles pub- articles published in hybrid journals the office is also responsible for the implementation of transformative agreements with open access component so this is what it looks like the kind of like this captures all our agreements in place as you can see we have agreements with most major publishers such as wiley springer and Francis but also with smaller society publishers such as Institute of physics and also with the International Water Association we also support a number of fully open access initiatives such as the open library for humanities cypos uh, and work with fully open access publishers as well so this um, so I want to move on now from the institutional level to the national level because all our open access initiatives they are feed into a bigger landscape and um, so in Austria, we are members of the Austrian Academic Library Consortium, and they negotiate open access transformative agreements on behalf of the sector. It's pretty large. It has 57 members, and some of the agreements that you saw on the previous slide, such as the Springer Compact Deal, for example, or the Wiley, they are all, they have been negotiated through the consortium. On the other side of the slide, you see the logo of the at 2 oa project, which stands for the Austrian Transition to Open Access. It's been been, uh, running since 2017, and it is led and hosted by the University of Vienna. Brigitte Kromp is the principal investigator. And in the middle, you can see the logo of the FWF, which stands for Austrian Science Fund, and they are the biggest, the most important uh, funding agency for basic science in Austria, and they have a very strong mandate for open access, and they also, one of the original members of Coalition S, which launched Plan S last year. So this leads me to the most important uh, development on an international level, uh, which is um, Plan S, the launching of Plan S. So what is Plan S? In a nutshell, it is an initiative for open access publishing, launched in September 2018. It is supported by Coalition S, an international consortium of research funders, and it requires that scholarly publications that result from research funded by Coalition S grants, must be published in compliant open access journals or platforms or made immediately available through open access repositori- repositories without embargo. And the new started is uh, January 2021. So there are three ways to for compliance. Authors can be compliant by publishing either in an open access journal or an open access platform, or number two, by publishing in a subscription journal and making a version immediately available through an OA repository without embargo, or by publishing open access in a subscription journal under a transformative open access agreement. And each of these routes must satisfy some specific conditions, and I'm not going to go go into too much details, but we thought it might be relevant to look at what we mean by a transformative agreement. So our understanding is that it's an open access deal between institutions and or funders and publishers, And the goal is transition to full full open access or journal flipping. So from closed access to open access. And we also want to move from subscription payments towards pay as you publish. So bearing in mind all these requirements that uh, comes with Plan S and our transformative agreements and other agreements, we wanted to get an an overview of to to what extent the university's transformative agreements meet our researchers' needs and what about other requirements? So we carried out uh, an analysis uh, review of our publishing output first on a macro level. So we looked at authors affiliated with the University of Vienna and took the 2017 data as, as baseline and this data was actually provided by the a 220 oa project. We looked at corresponding authors, research and review papers focused on funding information and also on the publishing venue, is there a transformative agreement already in place? Or is this article published in a fully open access journal? So this, this is the, what you see on the slide, is the visual summary of our, of, of our findings. So if you look at the orange part of the chart, this represent, uh, represents the share of the articles that are published in PlaDeS ready venues. So it means that either the article is published in a fully open access journal, that is listed in the directive of open access journals, or it is published under a transformative agreement. So this already represents about 57% of our total output, and we are also negotiating with the American Chemical Society and Cambridge University Press, and if you do reach an agreement with uh, these publishers, it will add an additional 5% to, to this kind of Plan S ready venues. What It doesn't mean that all these publications are already open access. So what this means, though, that is, is that authors have the option to publish open access in any of these journals. So we, it's covered by the agreement, and they can be fully Plan S compliant. And what you see on the other side of the chart, the blue part, it represents the, <coughs> sorry, the articles that are published in venues that are not yet or not Plan S compliant. So you can see a big slice is... Uh, journals, articles published in Elsevier subscription journals. There's also a long tail of publishers, about um, 120 publishers, between 1 to 80 articles per year. And again, we do not have an agreement. It should also be noted that articles can still be compliant in other ways, such as uh, by going through the repository route. So that was this side. And then we also wanted to look at um, how many of our articles actually need to be Plan S compliant. So we took the same set of data. And um, uh, the, it's based on the, we looked at the funding acknowledgement mentioned in the articles. So, because it's also, we should remember that not all articles have to be technically Plan S compliant, because if there's no funder behind the research that is presented in the paper, it doesn't have to be Plan S compliant. But as you can see already, like everything that is blue is something that there's a funder behind it. So, 36% of our of the articles result from research funded by The Austrian Science Fund, there's an additional 2%, again, other Planets funders, and we have another 6% from EU funding. And about one fifth of our articles mention funders that are not yet Planets, haven't joined Planets, but they might do so in the future. So that was the kind of like the macro analysis. But we also decided to do uh, faculty-by-faculty analysis because one of the criticisms that we were getting or feedback we were getting from researchers is that they might not be able to publish in the journals that is the most um, important to them or the most highly regarded in their field. So we thought, okay, let's have a look at the data that they have to input themselves, which is in the data in the University of Vienna CRIS system, and looked at uh, on faculty level for the past three years and looked at the articles where they publish the most frequently. So, one of the faculties is from the Social Sciences, Faculty of Psychology, and as you can see, already 58.5% of the articles are published in Plan compliant venues, and if you do sign an agreement with CUP, it will be over 60%. The other faculty we looked at is Faculty of Physics, and the picture is slightly different. There, uh, uh, Over half of our publications are already appearing in Plan ready venues, and um, reaching an agreement with ACS would make quite a big difference. We would reach 58%. So having done the analysis, we also wanted to look at um, our institutional repository because it's also important to be able to accommodate researchers that choose the repository route, or this is where the publisher... This is what the publisher offers. And we were very happy to see the new implementation guidelines uh, because uh, now we meet all mandatory requirements and also some of the recommended requirements. So, are we Planets ready? Uh, 50 to 60% of our articles are already published in Planets-compliant venues, so we are in a quite good position for now, at least. We're also um, carrying out more negotiations We continue to work with fully open access publishers and platforms, and um, coalition as members also launched a project to support society publishers, which might help us with this long tail of publishers. And repository would become more important. And of course, we we continue to work very closely with the Austrian Science Fund and the Austrian Library Consortium. Questions, of course, remains, what happens after 2024? So it has not been, of course, openly assailing. Uh What do we find the most challenging? So we identified three main areas. Number one, negotiating transformative agreements. Number two, workflows. And then financing open access publishing. So when we negotiate transformative agreements, we found that it's... Um, It's it's very different from your usual agreement when you look at your FTS and content transferring titles. You have to look at all these parts, and in addition, there's a new type of data, such as the publishing output that we looked at. So we have to look at corresponding authors, funding information, and I can guarantee that the data that you get from the publisher and the data that you generate yourself are more than likely not going to match, so you have to look at it, why and what's happening. There's also this whole new world of uh, new licensing terms and terminologies. So eligible articles and authors, who are they, what are these, the types of licenses that can be used. And there's also this whole new world of new business models such as offsetting these, read and publish, publish and read vouchers, discounted APCs, etc. So So all this leads to a new uh, kind of like a time and labor intensive negotiations and uh, I would say also more interesting negotiations, but this means that it's it's very intensive for everybody, not just for us, libraries and universities, but also for publishers. And the second is the workflows. I think it's very important to, to kind of bear in mind when you negotiate transformative agreements because it's something that everybody tends to underestimate, publishers more so than libraries. But, but you should remember when you uh, negotiate that we publishers must be able to reliably identify eligible authors because if you miss authors we miss open access articles and once they have identified um, eligible authors publishers must be also uh, must inform eligible authors of the open access publishing opportunity and it's very important that they are given clear instructions and they're not scared and don't walk away and third it's also very important that publishers design user friendly user-friendly web interfaces So it has to be something that is tailor-made for open access publishing, not just a subscription art, subscription workflow tweaked for open access. And uh, if you're interested in our, our experiences, like we wrote a paper last year, which was published in Insight. So you might want to have a look at it if if you need more information. And the last is the financing open access publishing, which is probably the most challenging for, for all or most of us in this room. And uh, this we hear often um, the holy grail is really is to be cost-neutral, and this is what we're aiming for. But that is not is always so easy to define. So there are a number of aspects that may feed into it, such as historic spend, publishing output, APCs paid to date, etc. cetera. And there's the second big area is the so-called money for gold. Uh, how do we find the additional funding required for gold open access publishing? Because unless we cancel, Uh, our existing subscriptions, we have to find new money for gold open access. And the third, which is our concerns, really, is about publishers increasing their income by accepting more open access articles, and at the same time, they're not reducing the share of paywalled content, so if this goes on, we will never be able to flip uh, journals to fully open access. So, is it possible to be Plan S compliant? we have yet to see, but um, like I said, we are in a quite good position. And our current level of compliance of 57% is reached through a combination of two things really, publishing in fully open access venues and by negotiating transformative agreements. But we do hope that it's not mission impossible. So that's it. (laughs)
0: do we have any direct questions? I see one arm raised already, uh, um, so I'll come to you with the mic.
2: Hello, uh, Andreas Hall, Hungarian Academy of Sciences. Uh, My question is, uh, are your uh, transformative agreements already in place or under negotiation Plan S compatible? Because Plan S uh, uh, has a set of conditions for transformative uh, agreements.
1: I think some of the agreements that are, I know that that's why I didn't want to go into too much details about the technicalities, but by the time it kicks in, we are confident that they will be all sorted out because publishers know about it, we know about it, we already, in many ways, so it's, I don't think we have every single box ticked, but it hasn't even started, so all agreements, I'm, I'm sure they will be compliant by the time it starts in 18 months.
0: Thank you, good question and good answer. Uh, yes, sorry.
2: Thank you, Cahill McCauley, Menduth University. Rita, excellent presentation, um, really enjoyed it. Just you mentioned um, that you did the analysis of faculty level because of concerns amongst faculty and the figures looked pretty good to me but did that re- re- reassure the faculty about concerns or what was their reaction to those figures?
1: I might let my colleague Brigitte Kromp to answer that she has closer links to faculty.
3: Hello, I'm Brigitta Kromp. So I would say we could not con- convince faculties. But uh, what I think what was very necessary, we had a lot of complaints uh, uh, because nature and science are not uh, included. And what we want to show was how many articles are really uh, published in Nature and Science and where do we really publish the articles? So I think it's necessary and to show them that it is not the end of the world uh, if Nature and Science is not included now or if we not have solutions now for Nature and Science and we we could not, uh, we will or we do not expect that we can convince them with one uh, statistics, but I think it's very necessary to come into contact with them and to show them that we really uh, take care about their uh, complaints and that we try to to go the way with them together. Thank you.
0: We have time for one final question. Short one. Uh, I'm going to throw this uh, so let's see if we can do it. Almost,
4: thank you. Thank you. Demivaric uh, from Leuven. My question is actually, like it seems, and I fully understand, because if we think about uh library providing a service, that this is the way we approach it, is where the research is now published, how can we make sure that how much is now already compliant, and how can we make sure that more of where they now publish becomes compliant? But is it not our task to do actually a bit of a different job is actually trying to convince them just stop publishing where you publish now. And that way, you don't have to get additional money. If we all cancel our Elsevier contracts, we have money enough to do open access the way we want it done.
3: Yeah. No, I would say it's definitely not my job to convince uh, researchers to publish in other journals. I would never do this, uh, but there is an effect. And the effect is what we see already now because we have the Springer agreement now in place for for the fourth year. And we saw that uh, with all publishers where we have uh, agreements where you can publish and so the workflows are very important. Where the researchers have the possibility to publish open access without further costs for themselves and with easy procedures. Then they will do it. uh, Because we see that uh, with all uh, transformative agreements, the number of publication was increasing. uh, But for example, with Elsevier, the number of publications were decreasing. So it's not necessary that I uh, Try to convince publishers to to publish in other journals. I think there is a certain that there is a spirit, and if you offer them enough possibilities, so I, I really think that in the future, uh, open access or that will be a criterion for researchers, or will become a criterion for researchers for their decisions. And I think this is better than really to to tell them as as library, uh, you should not publish with this publisher. So I really do not see this as my duty to do this. And I would not be allowed to do this. Thank you. Um, That was some encouraging thoughts.
0: Uh, I think uh, if you're happy, I'm happy. We're ready for the next presentation. Are you ready? Yes. Uh, So the next presenter is Katie Wilson. She's joining us all the way from Curtin University in Australia. And this paper is presented uh, uh, to talk about open access and ongoing work in academic libraries uh, to contribute to making knowledge publicly available. The paper, paper will hopefully give you an opportunity to reflect upon if your own practices are as open as you think or wish they were.
5: Thank you, thank you very much. Um, my name is Katie Wilson, and I'm giving this paper on behalf of uh, my colleagues, Cameron Naylan, Lucy Montgomery, Kai Carl Huang, and Alkem Ozajin. We're all at Curtin University in Western Australia. And I'd just like to begin with some acknowledgements, firstly, to the Wadjuk people of the Noongar nation, the traditional owners of the land on which the Curtin University Perth campus is located, uh, where I work and where the research takes place. Uh, to Te Ate Ki Taranaki, my ancestors, from, and Whakapapa from Aotearoa, New Zealand. To the conference organisers and to the support and technical staff. Um, so firstly, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit briefly about the whole project that this um, research is part of. It's um, the Curtain Open Knowledge Initiative, known as Cookie. And um, it's located at Curtin University. It's a strategic research project funded by the university and we're in our second year of of operation. Um, The idea for the Koki project was born out of a sense of frustration at the extent to which our own institutions seem to be fixated on rankings and metrics as indicators of performance and research success. We were also frustrated by what felt like a lack of knowledge about open access and open science at an institutional level, and by a lack of coordination between the ambitions of the university to create positive change in the world, and our experiences of the processes and metrics being used to evaluate research at a local level. So we came up with a project that set out to create a framework for for universities as open knowledge institutions. Um, The project uses uses publicly available data sets wherever possible to be consistent with the open knowledge and transparency goals of the project. Um, Here's some of our team. Um, The project is led by Cameron, Naylan, Lucy Montgomery, John Hartley and um, we're a kind of a, a multidisciplinary team. So we have some data scientists. Um, I'm a qualitative researcher with an academic library background. And um, we also work and collaborate with people from outside of Australia, uh, of Curtin and Australia. So this photograph here is uh, the team behind our first major project output, which was a book. And uh, it was a book sprint book on open knowledge institutions um, where we brought together some, uh, a group of people such as science communicators, people working in community building, evolutionary econo- economists, and people with knowledge of, uh, with experience of knowledge institutions in South Africa and, and China. The book puts forward the idea that we are advocating for universities to become open knowledge institutions, which institu- institutionalise the world's creative diversity and contribute to the stock of human knowledge. Um, so I have um, a few copies of the book. If anyone is interested to give away, it's also available on the MIT Press open um, open access website. Pub it's open. It's MIT Press open platform. It's open for community comment and review, and we would love your comments. So please take a look. Um, So we're arguing that open access and open data are very important elements of knowledge systems, but in order to be successful open knowledge institutions, universities also need to address challenges of diversity and collaboration. And that means engaging with questions about who gets to make knowledge and how knowledge is shared, not just within disciplines or scholarly communities, but across discipline boundaries and between universities and the wider community. With that in mind, we began to think about the possibilities and the limitations of publicly available data in relation to efforts to capture information about the intentions of an institution as they relate to open access, diversity, and cross-boundary collaboration, the effect that a university is putting into translating its intentions into reality, and the outcomes of efforts to operate as an open-knowledge institution. So we're... What this diagram shows is (laughs) we're working with a theoretical model of change, starting on the left-hand side. Uh, Most universities are at the beginning of this change model. They predominantly identify things they are not doing in relation to diversity, communication and coordination. And policies often are framed at addressing deficits. There's also little overlap between each of the areas we're concerned about. For example, open access policies don't include diversity, diversity policies don't mention open access. A university that's further along its journey towards operating as an open knowledge institution is likely to have a greater focus on how synergies between diversity, coordination and communication can be leveraged. So one research stream that we're exploring is the extent to which physical access to university campuses impacts on relationships between researchers located inside universities and knowledge, community, knowledge communities that exist outside institutions. There are many dimensions of institutional access, uh, openness, but limited ways to explore this or assess it. Library access is a potentially useful proxy for a university's openness to wider communities. This tells us something about how institutions think about their relationships with local and global communities. So the project, the, the study at explores the availability of public data, the feasibility of locating documents for analysis, and the appropriateness of library access as an indicator or proxy for institutional openness. At this stage, the scope is small, but global in nature. And we're looking at information about who can access a university library, which is usually publicly available. So we've been able to capture and interrogate library policies at an international scale. We explore the relationship between a university's support for open access, which in theory helps break down some of the cost barriers, and a library's capacity to allow the general public to use its resources. So to start with, it's a pilot study. We've selected 20 institutions from around the world. And um, universities with a mixture of OA publication policies, institutional repositories, university presses, large and small output and a spread of languages and cultural practices. To help us with the project we developed um, a tool to automate the searching and retrieval of documents um, policy documents which we downloaded from websites and public directories and um, because we're working across languages and, and culture we um, to assist with our ling- with such linguistic terminal and terminological variations we created a um, a multilingual scholarly communication lexicon. So, firstly, we looked at um, categories of users, um, and we found that they kind of fell into three sort of concentric circles spreading out from the core of an institution. So, the core is the faculty, staff and students, and and the next um, circle is those groups who seem to be adjacent, have some kind of affiliation with an institution. And on the outside is the the general public, public community, day visitors, um, independent researchers. Then we looked further um, at how these categories are are spread across the the institutions that we we, uh, were looking at. On the left-hand side, we you'll see the we analysed the and encountered the spread of user types and, and privileges across institutions. Um, the different the very vari- the, the categories tend to indicate um, groups of users that have access, that conditions have been set for, um, or sometimes to exclude uh, groups of users. And. Um, For instance, the public or community is often delineated further by um, visiting researcher, day visitor, school students, other institutional students. And these uh, different categories would reflect reasons or issues of space, demand on collections, cultural traditions. Um, And, for example, we found the category of spouses or family of institutional staff, is mostly present in North America. So there are some geographical patterns and differences. On the right, we looked at different privileges for external users, so things like um, access for um, external users to remote uh, to electronic resources. Um, because of licensing reasons, it's usually a subset of, of free resources. And um, w- one institution had remote access to e-resources available for um, external users. But really we found that we had to um, dig a little bit deeper to to try and sort of distill some points of difference that separate libraries' positions on openness. And so we asked these following additional questions. Um, Are fees charged to all unaffiliated persons? Are any members of the public excluded from access? And do restrictions on physical access to libraries exist? And here on the right is the result. So the, the blue is the, um, the category of, of user and the red is um, the, 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 libraries, the number of libraries that charge fees. Not every... Um, well, generally what we found is that the most restrictions are on the general public, not in every library, but overall... And the costs of open access, open library access, um, vary considerably by geography and location types of members, um, some from from no charge at all, others to annual membership fees or for single-day visitor fees for access. Um, In the literature, the impact on budgets from the cost of providing access and support for external users is a reason given for restricting access and fees for external (coughs) users may be introduced to offset administrative costs and staff costs. However, again, in the literature, there's limited publicly available cost analysis to explore this further. So it it raises some questions about the reasons for fees and charges. So this led us to three differential points of openness, um, access or membership for the public, fees charged for public users, and restrictions on access to physical buildings. And these three points separate the library's positions on openness beyond the institution. So we scored each library on these features from zero to three. Next, we correlated the library access positions with positions on open access publishing because it is this we are interested in the context of open access. And the features open... Was an open access policy available? It was an institutional repository available? Are uh, open access funds provided? And we also scored each institution on those f- uh, features, and then we added a third dimension, which is the percentage of open access output for 2017. And on the top, you'll see there the scoring for each institution. For the library access policies, so it's quite varied. Um, the second graph shows the publications for um, the, the, uh, the percentage of open access publications for 2017, and this um, data is from the the Koki team. We have um, extracted this or um, analysed and, cre- and created this data by looking at three databases, Microsoft Academic, Scopus, and Web of Science. We've pulled out the items with DOIs from those databases, and we've cross-referenced them with the same DOIs in Unpaywall and Crossref to to determine total output. And we find that these scores then are a little more consistent on on this graph here by (coughs) country and region. But looking at them together... The two graphs show an inconsistent correlation between open access performance and library access policies. Open access policy has a positive relationship with OA publications, whereas the library access policies show a lower um, correlation with the percentage of open access publications. So this might present opportunities for better coordination and more holistic narratives about what openness means for university libraries. Um, geographically, this is um, some, of the, some additional data or an additional presentation of data that we've we've gathered. Um, it's open access performance, performance by region, so very broad regions, broken into gold and green publications. So um, we can see, for example, the Oceania, which is Australia and New Zealand, that's the purple there in the middle, is kind of clumped towards the, the lower end and neither Australia or New Zealand, at the moment, has as an open access national a national open access strategy, compared to, uh, say, Europe um, and uh, Latin America, who have, and the UK, who have stronger open access policies, national policies. So, so far, what does the re- research tell us? There are. Um, many reasons for variant access, that is library access restrictions, and um, intentions and actions vary. If we think back to the, the Venn diagram we had, um, we looked at communication and coordination and intentions. So the coordination of intentions expressed by the two policy actions is not in similar directions, in other words, to reach the same ends. We also found the that the important, the really, it was really important to have clear communication on, on websites about the um, and, ten, and terminology to communicate intentions regarding the sharing of knowledge and support for potential external users with research needs. And so, just briefly, the next steps. We I continue to gather data on on library access and open access policies worldwide. Um, Our ultimate goal is to use the data we're collecting to facilitate conversations about universities and and openness. So we're thinking carefully about how we do this in a productive and helpful way. We plan to, and we are inviting libraries to review some of the data we've gathered. For for example, we're doing this um, now in Australia and New Zealand because we've gathered open access data there. So we're inviting libraries to um, review the data we've gathered. And we're also interested in collaborating and coalition building with other interested parties. Um, So our our next major step is um, what we call a validation workshop, where we're inviting key players in the field from around the world to come and talk to us about what we're doing, um, stress test our approach and our methodology, and continue to work towards open knowledge institutions. Thank you.
0: Uh, Okay, Uh, we have the uh, chat box up there. Do we have any questions for this really interesting research? Thank you so much. Um, The correlation between what we say about the library and what we do, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually uh, I was trying to think and write at the same time, which is not always a good idea. Um, let's see if I had a question. Uh, I was a little bit interested about the libraries that you found that didn't provide public access at all to the library room. Did, did you get any... Did they say anything about why they chose to do that?
5: It's, that's a very, very interesting question because we're, we're looking at publicly available data, we, we, and it doesn't say, really.
0: Yeah.
5: Um, it doesn't... A library, so, we can only surmise, and, and the reasons why some libraries limit access and some libraries don't. Some libraries are, say that the library is open to all. Sometimes it can be a, a whole national position, Sometimes it can be um, dependent. It, this is our sort of analysis. We, it, it can be dependent on where a library is located, where a university is located. If it's in a very busy, highly populated area with lots of traffic, um, then maybe that's a that's reason why. Um, in some other um, universities, it's maybe in a, in a less public area. So, uh, but then also it can depend on whether the what kind of um, relationships the university has with the community if they have very particular a strong strategic open community policy so um without actually asking people we we can only surmise those those sorts of reasons but that is the really key question i
0: think yeah and we would love to find out more about that because do we live as we learn that's that's the the question thank you so much katie thank you Okay, next up, with a, a little switch in the program, uh, is, uh, hang on, uh, I need uh, some manuscripts <laughs> because I can't keep all this in my head. Um, we are going to hear a presentation from a, a duo uh, from Graham Stone and Jaron uh, Um You can present yourself. The title is Towards a Knowledge Exchange Roadmap for Open Access Monographs. And this paper will focus on the open access to books, what is needed for, from research funders and libraries to include the long form academic output in the mix when we move towards full open access. Uh, from this talk, you can expect to see some suggestions of best practices of which some has been echoed during a pre-conference workshop earlier today. So the conversation is already ongoing. So I'm hoping for some good takeaway messages. Do you want uh, this microphone as well?
4: Give this man the microphone, he's going to interrupt my part of the, com- the presentation. Um, thank you very much. Um, it's, it's a real pleasure for both of us to, uh, to stand up here today and represent the knowledge exchange um, rather than our, our particular organizations. Um, just to start, um, I'm going to do a bit of a, a very brief introduction before we move on to the, the more meaty stuff of, uh, of some thoughts at the end of, uh, of the work that KE. Um, has been doing. Um, A quick introduction to KE, um, Knowledge Exchange, for those of you who who don't know. Um, It's it's an organisation of six national organisations, six partners uh, in Germany, UK, Denmark, Netherlands, um, Finland and France, which joined um, a couple of years ago now. Um, It has a... A list of, of missions and objectives, um, but basically the, the work of the group is to enable open scholarship. Um, I will not go through all of the uh, missions and objectives, but you can you can see there really you know the main things are um, inspiring new approaches, um, improving infrastructure and services, um, and also stimulating produ- uh, productive networks as well. And there's been a number of workshops over the years that. Um, The knowledge exchange is done both in open scholarship uh, and open access. Um, This afternoon, we are going to be talking about the the monographs stream um, from KE. Um, And I'm not going to go into huge details. There may have been some of you who were in the the, uh, excellent session, he says, buttering up the chair of this session, who ran the excellent session um, this morning. But there was a a session on on, um, open access monographs um, it also included um, a presentation from uh, Elko Verde from um, OAPEN, um, which covered this landscape report, um, and that was also presented last year at LIBE, so I'm not going to give you a third version in, in, in 12 months, um, but just to say that the, the group at Knowledge Exchange has been working on this for around three years now. Um, and. This report was the first output commissioned um, in in 2017. Um, it was the biggest landscape study yet. It's now, I think, the first of very many reports um, that have come out over the last uh, 12 months or so. Uh, the most recent being uh, the Springer report, which came out last week, and I think the week before the Digital Science report. And if you go back, there are there are there are more and more reports. Um, but it really was, was the first one that looked at the, um, the, the, the landscape. Um, it, uh, it looked at eight countries, um, the six KE countries, and we were also very fortunate to receive some funding from Norway and Austria as well to look at those countries. Um, Knowledge Exchange does look at its own partner institutions, the organizations. Um, it, it gave a, an overview of the, of the situation a couple of years ago. Um, There's a couple of quotes in here. This, I think, is probably the elephant in the room because uh, one of the things was the the chief obstacle being um, funding. That's not really something the knowledge exchange as an organisation that looks at um, uh, networks and and things that can can really answer. Um, Another thing I I think is quite nice, though, is it did did quite nicely lead up to Plan S because it did say um, that it might be linked to research assessment and then... A year later, we we had um, Plan S um, and a hint at monographs in in 2021. Um, So we had this. It's it's been widely cited. It's been widely read, widely um, uh, publicized. Um, But at the beginning of 2018, we decided that we probably needed to do a bit more work on identifying some of the gaps um, so, between April and May 2018, um, the Knowledge Exchange conducted um, a survey, which was analysed um, by, by JISC in the UK, um, and that was really to, like I say, to help anal- help look at some of the gaps that the landscape study had informed us about, to try and find out a little bit more, which would then um, help us with a workshop, which we'll, um, we'll discuss in a second. Um, we, we had 233 valid responses. so this survey is, is by no means statistically anything, really. It's an indication. Um, it was for, it, We got 25 countries um, predominantly from the UK, but we did do a bit of checking around the UK results and they did match the rest of Europe. Um, so there was no bias particularly from, from the UK. Um, We didn't have a great deal of input from um, outside of Europe, so we couldn't really do any rest of the world analysis. Um, But we did get responses from academic libraries, universities, uh, authors, publishers. Um, Basically, and I've got a few of these things, and and traditionally we have to show you a slide that nobody in the room, including myself on this monitor, can actually read. but well, we asked a few questions. The surveys, as uh, published, and we've got a link at the end of the presentation. Um, but we did we we did ask where, what sort of certain areas um, uh, people were, were interested in, or the certain status um, funding comes up there as a key area that people didn't really know much about. A workable plan um, was was also something, but also something that people needed was was good cooperation. And again, that came out I think in the, in the workshop this morning. Um, We asked people about priorities for development. Um, I think all you can take from this slide is every single thing that we listed was a priority to every single person (laughs) that answered the survey. Um, I've never seen so much green on on there for, for yes, this is is important. Um, Some of the things that were slightly more important than the other important things were were, um, academic reward structures, so uh, incentivization, uh, funding again, infrastructure, collaboration. Um, I think the only thing, and it's right at the bottom, where there's a little bit more orangey red than anything else is that nobody wanted stricter enforcement of mandates. Um, so uh, that's, that's, that's not a surprise. Um, so the, the results we got gave us a, an indication of, of, uh, of where we thought we needed to go with, um, with a workshop uh, that we held in November last year in, in Brussels. Um, held in Brussels for a reason, because we wanted to be uh, in a place where we could have representatives from the European Commission there. We also had various other um, invited representation from, from all over Europe. Um, had some introductory talks. Um, we also had a funders panel, a publishing panel, and then a number of workshops um, as well. And at this point, I'm gonna hand over for the, for the meaty bits.
6: Yeah, so um, Graham already said that um, a lot of reports, uh, the last three years, we have seen a lot of reports on on Open Access books uh, appearing. Um, And based on the workshop, the latest report, at least from the Knowledge Exchange of all the work we've done in the last three years, um, was presented in June 2019. Um, so we published the report uh, of this Brussels workshop. Um, it reflects all the discussions being held in uh, in, in Brussels. Um, it gives an overview of what um, uh, the different um, aspects um, uh, are of open access book publishing and all the stakeholders involved in that ecosystem. Um, And in the previous slide, we had four um, workshops, um, author engagement, technical infrastructure policies, OA policies, and uh, monitoring of open access books. And in the report, um, um, there are a lot of recommendations formulated for each of these um, different workshops. We won't go into detail about all the recommendations for all stakeholders because that takes another day. Um, So universities are being addressed, funders, uh, publishers, um, uh, infrastructure um, uh, companies um, and libraries. So um, I think we've gathered uh, already some impact and maybe some is a bit, um, maybe I can say great impact um, to start with the landscape study uh, uh, commissioned by by, uh, the Knowledge Exchange. Being done by Ilko Ferreira, who is present here as well, um, heavily downloaded from the from the GIST repository um, and already being used in um, at least a, a few policy uh, documents I've seen. So that's a good thing. Um, Had a knowledge exchange wants to facilitate um, networks yeah, of experts uh, to exchange these views and provide recommendations and desired developments um, and give advice uh, to policymakers, for instance. But Um, We don't going to produce another report, uh, at least uh, from the knowledge exchange uh, perspective. We've done a lot of work, we think, um, and uh, it already led to uh, great discussions, of which um, the the morning session workshop was a really good workshop um, to address um, what could be done and uh, more specifically be done by libraries, but I will come back to that uh, later. So, um, a lot of things are already happening uh, outside these reports um, very actively. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of the Opera Network, um, uh, a collaborative uh, of different uh, players in, from different countries um, to build upon uh, um, uh, um, uh, infrastructure uh, for, for open scholarly communication. Uh, Here, uh project looking into uh, developments for. Tools, for instance, for open access books, um, uh, metrics, uh, uh, annotations, these kind of things, quality assessments. Um, Hermes is part of Opera. Then COPIM, uh, recently being granted, uh, I think, two and a half million, um, not euros, but pounds, British pounds, uh, by Research England, the research council in, uh, in, uh, in the UK. Um, it's a community led uh, um, um, collaboration by scholar led presses. Um, and ScholarLed is the name of the um, the, the network. Um, and um, uh, coping will also create uh, uh, along the way consortial funding models for for libraries um, to directly support non-for-profit open access publishers and uh, libraries. Uh, that's the idea. We're playing an essential role in Copim's uh, governance in the next uh, few years to uh, to come. Uh, then the the Project website, invest in open infrastructure. Uh, n- right now, it's a website calling for uh, connecting um, um, uh, people to uh, uh, de- who are working uh, on open infrastructure, open scholarly infrastructure. Tome, that's from the US, in the, um, uh that's a um, connection between publishers and uh, institutions funding open access monographs. Um, then the UK OA Monograph Working Group, Uh, did also a lot of work uh, um, the last few years. And then um, the forthcoming document, um, and this morning, um, uh, Ilko referred to that as well. Uh, The Science Europe uh, policy brief on OA uh, monographs is um, being developed. Um, We had a discussion in Brussels a few weeks ago, uh, and it will be hopefully presented um, in September um, with a lot of recommendations. Um, uh, for for libraries and other stakeholders, so to digest uh, all these reports and thinking about OA monographs uh, and also um, the the morning discussion, uh, some um, takeaways or maybe a call to action for us as, li- as libraries as research libraries. So. Um, I should say that there is a, a, the, the big report, but there's also a, uh, an executive summary uh, of four pages listing all the recommendations. So if you don't have much ta- that much time, uh, please look at that. Um, we've taken out the, the library um, uh, recommendation, so, uh, and there's, of course, much more. Um, but these are just a few uh, uh, important um, things and also addressed this morning, um, so potential Um, uh, a potential active role in financing and supporting publication of OA monographs, Um, looking at the long-term sustainability of open access monographs, of course. Identify opportunities to work collaboratively across organizations and disciplines, Um, and maybe we can extend this also to uh, third parties like publishers, for instance, um, set uh, certain uh, standards, technical standards, um, in collaboration with uh, um, organizations outside the library, uh, and then of course support open access infrastructure. For for example, the SCOS, um, uh initiative um, could be looked at uh, to uh, to strengthen um, um, the, the open access infrastructure um, for monographs, and then and this was. Um, um, not debated, but uh, very acknowledged that during this this morning session on, on open access books is community engagement. Um, possibly a, a big role for libraries there uh, to engage with uh, with authors, uh, but also faculties and, and and deans and and profiles chancellors to uh, to talk about OA monographs because we see that there is a lack of awareness on on what is happening, um, what what can. I do with, with, with a monograph. Uh, um, so these, these kind of um, yeah, uh, discussions should be held um, uh, on an institutional level. Recognize the need of, uh, to balance mandating and incentivizing uh, the Plan S mandate, possibly mandate for for, for, for monographs. We don't know yet. Uh, that is something that uh, will happen in the course of 2021. Um, but again, uh, uh, we need to have a discussion on. Uh, what could be done there? Showcasing different publisher models. Um, I already uh, mentioned the scholar-led, um, which are basically scholars experimenting with with systems, with infrastructure, with software, uh, publishing models, business models. Um, a lot of great things happening there. So um, that's um, a thing to uh, to look at. Um, is it a joke? Um, Maybe it is. Uh, We ended the Brussels uh, workshop with uh, this statement. Um, uh, We have a lot of declarations uh, more or less focusing on on all kinds of aspects and uh, if it's on open access then we usually talk about open access for articles. Um, So maybe this could be a sort of uh, starting point for the discussion uh, where we want to go with open access monographs from a library perspective. Then shortly some acknowledgements. I won't read them all, but I want to thank all the, um, the experts and, and especially the Knowledge Exchange for facilitating um, this work uh, uh, for the last three years. Um, and the report, there's uh, the link to the website. I think the, the presentations will be online somewhere, so it's clickable, uh, and you can find all the uh, all the information and reports um, there. And I think I'm done now. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, do we have any questions in the audience about what to do for open access monographs? I see some hands moving. Uh, can we get the speaking box down here? One here. Um, we'll start and see where we, go, where we end up.
2: Hello, uh, thank you. Uh, Andras Scholf from Hungarian Academy of Sciences. Uh, it's a comment, uh, rather uh, a question. Uh, you uh, made a call for libraries to uh, increase awareness. Uh, I would add one more point, increase visibility, because what I see, uh, uh, we librarians, we often promote uh, uh, the different e-books, packages of uh, commercial publishers, we often, uh, uh, obviously, promote books on our shelves, but we don't uh, uh, put uh, enough uh, effort on promoting uh, uh, material, open access material on the web. Maybe we also lack uh, skills uh, or knowledge fi- finding them and and uh, uh, helping our users to find them.
4: Should say, I mean, that's that's an excellent point, and 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 interestingly enough it's nice how these when everything um, comes together um, but that's exactly the one of the points that came up in, in the, uh, the workshop this morning which is the trouble with giving these slides in a week and then we had a conversation about can we rewrite these slides in between over lunch um, but yes the, the um, yeah that, that that exactly another thing actually that, that came up around ebook packages was um, around can we can we flip e-book packages to OA. Is that is that not something that we could we could look at doing as well?
0: Yeah, yeah, what can we learn from working with journal articles? Can we can we leverage that knowledge that we already have quite quickly into open access monographs? That's what we want to explore in the future, I think, all of us. Yeah. Um, we, we. Yeah, we will share the workshop outcome uh, this morning as well, so it it, it would just take a couple of days to put it together because there were so many great ideas. (laughs) Anyone else who has a uh, question for the gentleman on the stage? You can think about it, maybe we can come back later when people have had a a little bit of a think. Okay, we have, uh, oh, I love that thing. Okay, Uh, the last presentation, please welcome. uh, colleagues uh, Beata Rush and, um, uh, and uh, 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 Hildegard Schaeffler, thank you, from Bavarian State Library in Germany. This last paper uh, uh, in the session will present a project called Deep Green, where they are creating automated workflows to transfer open access publications into workflows while preserving metadata quality such as example, for example, licensing information or also affiliation, something that we've all be, been have problems with. Uh, I hope that you will get some ideas on how open access workflows can become more efficient at your workplace from these good examples. So please go ahead. Thank you very much for the introduction. Um, Arthur Rusch and myself,
7: that's Hildegard Scheffler, uh, we're very pleased to be here today uh, to be able to talk about our project Deep Green, um, which is meant to be an, if you like, infrastructure contribution to the open access uh, transformation. Now. I'm even more particularly pleased to be here myself because my plane took a little unintentional detour via Belfast this morning or early today. So I'm I'm quite happy to be here and thank you for switching us around. (laughs) Um, And as you can see, um, not only our project has some athletic challenges, but also the questions of how to get here in in the first place. Um, So what is, sorry. What is uh, this all about? Um, As we all know, this has been talked about or referred to a lot also already in this session. They're institutional repositories which aim at making research uh, research results publicly available, sort of showcasing local scholarly output, playing a role in Plan S implementation and so forth. And very much of this is done on the basis of green open access self-archiving. So one of the key questions here has always been how to get a significant amount of content actually deposited. Um, Scholars obviously cannot be expected to spend their time on doing this themselves. For librarians, it's cumbersome, it's a time-consuming task um, if they have to go and uh, pick things from from all over the place. At the same time, the publishers have the data and ideally, of course, also the correct uh, affiliation information which you need for this purpose. Deep Green is trying to do is to bring together publishers, researchers, or the research published, and the libraries as the repository owners to automate this transfer of data from the publishers via a data hub uh, to the actual repositories. That's that's a general idea here. Now, in setting the scene before we come uh, to the actual project, In setting the scene, we we have to look at uh, the federal landscape in in Germany, which adds to the complexity of of the exercise. Um, What we have, though, in our country is a specific type of license, um, uh, which uh, was funded or is still being funded to some extent by the German Research Foundation. It's already been referred to, DFG, as as its acronym, uh, which these licenses regularly contain green open access clauses, um, which allow self-archiving on the basis of the version of records, that is the published version, after as short an embargo as possible. Uh, So this was our starting point for the deep green project, um, to say this is where we want to uh, sort of raise a kind of treasure we have here to do this self-archiving in a systematic way and on the basis of the published PDF. Still, the licensing landscape in our country, uh, in our federal country, remains diverse to some extent, in that those DFG-funded licenses, which I described, they aim at as broad a coverage you can get, but at the same time, it's an opt-in basis, so there is the possibility of opting in and out of those licenses. You you, you never cover everyone here. There are lots of other licenses uh, very often held at a regional consortium uh, level or at a local level. And the other dimension of the diversity is the repository uh, landscape where uh, institutional repositories are based on different um, uh, types of software solutions. Um, And a third aspect of of setting the scene is is the question of which color are we uh, actually talking about when we talk about deep green. Um, so, of course, as we've already heard uh, today in this session, uh, there's an increasing number of gold open access transformative agreements, uh, the most prominent one in our country being the, the project deal agreement with, with Wiley, uh, obviously, and there are others around the pure open access, gold open access agreement. There is, there's more to come of this. Um, so we have to take this into account, obviously. At the same time, we feel that green open access hasn't gone away, it remains a relevant part of the open access transformation and of of the landscape. Um, And if if you look at the type of license we have in mind, particularly this um, published PDF version, which we have in those DFG-funded licenses, it is already a a goldish shade of green, if if you like. Um, So what we're saying here is deep uh, deep green can really handle both gold and green. Challenges remain. Uh, Just to name one point here, uh, when we look at either gold open access articles or our published versions through self-archiving, what we haven't tackled yet here is um, if we get from publishers only uh, pre-published versions, will we also be able to get them in a systematic way from the publisher rather than uh, picking uh, them ourselves? So some some of the questions here in, in setting the scene. Uh, Let's move on to the actual project um, and its challenges there. I've already described the aims of the project in trying to automate this this process from the publisher via the data hub uh, to the um, various repositories, both at the level of the metadata and the full text. The target group here is really all the academic uh, institutions in Germany, both universities and uh, and other uh, uh, research organizations. And as I said, uh, from a license point of view, the focus is on those DFG-funded licenses as well as Goal Open Access for institutional repositories. But we've also been looking at the question of subject repositories. That is uh, still under, dis- uh, under discussion of how to um, get content into them as well. Um, how does it actually work? Um, in three simple steps here. Um, publishers are supposed to deposit their metadata and full text via SFTP. Um, In a second step, um, this is where the matching uh, exercise begins with all sorts of of tricky parts, one of them being how to do this affiliation thing. Um, What we ask participating repositories to do is to upload a data file with their name variations so that we we get a better basis for our actual uh, matching with the publisher's data there. And, and in a third step, uh, Deep Green actually delivers the publications and the metadata uh, to the authorized repositories via a number of interfaces. Um, Deep Green technically, by the way, is based on an open source version of the publications event router which you use, uh, or which we developed at, at JISC um, in, in the UK. Um, and at this point, before it becomes more technical, I'd better, move on to Beate Rusch, who, whose colleagues actually run the thing.
8: Hello? Yeah, okay. So where are we today? In a few weeks in summer we will begin a rather big testing phase with around 30 German repositories. The aim of this phase is to identify problems and difficulties, and most importantly, to get experience with the data and the repositories in a live simulation. We also hope that a successful testing phase will have positive effects on future communication with interested publishers. We have two partners from the publishing houses since 2016. This is S. Carger and Sage Publications. These will participate in the testing phase as well. But we also have been promising indications from MDPA, BMJ Frontiers, and Walter de Kreuter. So where are all our challenges? I think we do have two. One is the verification of the open access rights. This information about the open access rights, especially when it comes to the green open access rights, isn't coded in the metadata we got from the the publishing houses yet. So we we had to find another solution. So what we do is we verify the institution's open access rights by looking at the German electronic journal database which contains information about journal holdings and licenses. The second challenge is is, um, the willingness of the publication houses to give us data. We are rather proud that we that we um, succeeded in getting data from six publishing houses, but of course this could be more. Our real, really big success is the huge interest in in Deep Green from the German library community. So when you have when you put now all this information you got in mind. Let's um, be visionary just for a moment. So what if, what if there were many more deep greens? What if if we would build a deep green, deep gold European network? If everybody, if every country had its own deep green project, if it would be a normal, unquestionable service to get data from commercial publishing houses, just as normal as we do get our annual usage statistic. And now I'm talking not only about gold, I'm talking also about green. Some countries with a scattered and heterogeneous repository landscape, like we do have this in Germany, would need to build a new technical infrastructure, analogous to what we do in Germany. In other countries, such as France, with a sophisticated national repository like Hall, not even this additional technical infrastructure would be necessary. Then, in these countries, deep green would be only a matter of policy. And as soon as this becomes more standard, the less it would be a matter of additional negotiations like it is now. Actually, it's all about data. It's about data and the control of data. And European Deep Green Network would establish the idea of self-archiving by the library as a standard service for researchers. It would increase the content of all our repositories enormously. And as soon as we do have the data, and here quantity matters and completeness matters, we may easily establish more services. We can answer those questions. Who is publishing in which journal under which license? Who is citing whom in your institution? Of course, quality matters too. If all over Europe and beyond, we would ask for publications data from publishers for self-archiving, it would help to establish good standards in scholarly publications, and not only in theory, but in practice too. And I'm talking about international standards for affiliations. I'm talking about ORCID. And I'm talking about standards for license and funding information. The importance of clean metadata is emphasized by many groups all over and over again, and we are one of them. Among those other initiatives are ESAC, but also those big stakeholders such as Crossref are talking about clean metadata and the importance of clean metadata. The next one I will skip and I will jump back to reality. Back to reality. Negotiating about data with publishing houses is cumbersome, time consuming, and sometimes costly. However, we experience that communication with international publishing houses gets much easier when we do explain that, at least from the technical part From the technical perspective, what we do is quite similar to what GIST is doing. Actually, then it gets more easy, so it helps to join forces. Whether or not a bigger, deep green, deep gold network all over Europe, or even beyond, becomes reality, actually, that's up to you, or that's up to you, up to us. If we want that, then we need to discuss, are we willing to negotiate delivery of metadata and publications data as part of our subscription and open access agreements? Are we willing to negotiate to get the version of record for deep green open access, or is a pre-print version or an, an accepted manuscript version good enough? Thank you for your
0: attention. Thank you. uh, That was very interesting. Um, What does the audience say? Do you have any questions for the ladies? Yes, we have one at the front. You can borrow my microphone.
5: Thank you, very interesting and a great project. So, um, you know, to. To build up, to populate repositories, and to improve that that flow of information. But uh, I, so I have a question: If a paper is, say, published by multiple authors from multiple institutions, would a copy of each go to each of the repositories, institutional repositories?
0: The answer is easier. The answer is yes. Good. Um, Anyone else who's curious? Yes, do you get the box over there? Stella Butler, um,
9: University of Leeds. Um, Going to your last um, slide and the question that you posed um, about metadata, uh, I think increasingly we're all understanding that metadata is key to some of this. Um, And some of it is in the um, is in the power of the, uh, the researcher and the institutions. I'm, I'm thinking about institutional affiliation. But surely, um, the, some, most of the core metadata, we have to start pressing the, um, the publishers, don't we? You know, that's a that's question. Isn't it a no-brainer that we need to put that into negotiating um, deals?
7: yeah definitely i mean this this is a a, a very old question, if you like, because we've been trying to do this in different settings to get proper metadata through negotiations. I'm thinking about traditional subscription negotiations uh, for for e-books, for instance, where we've been trying for ages to get proper metadata, and now we have a a slightly different question here which which relates to uh, metadata which we need for the repositories. But the the question of the standards and of what we ask publishers to provide is a question for negotiations, indeed. And what what uh, Berta Rusch just said was, um, the more demand there is for this type of data, um, the, the the better they will get. That's, that's one of our points, really. Well, if I could just
9: perhaps follow up. I mean. Um, It seems to me that we've failed with the publishers over e-books. I mean, I'm not a cataloguer, but my cataloguers tell me that the the metadata they get from most of the e-book publishers is, and you'll uh, pardon my my French, but crap. Um, I I do think that if we are to move to the Plan S um, requirements and... um, reporting to our funders and so on somehow I think the libraries have got to de- determine and define the metadata standard that we require of publishers mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and actually um, impose some sanctions if they don't deliver
7: yeah well I, I, I've Done this in, in negotiation settings, and you can define it. The question is: Is this a deal breaker in the end if they don't? Or are there sanctions? we withhold
9: you sanction it? We, yeah. we withhold subscriptions until yeah. they until there are things that are proved. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. it's a, it's very interesting. I think it's it's a. I mean, it's a, a question for all libraries to get this right. I have a couple of questions as well, if you don't mind. Uh, uh, one is. Uh, will you harvest e-books as well as is it any publications or just journal articles
8: at the moment our technical infrastructure it's just for articles but i think that the idea to harvest monographs as well is a, an idea for deep green deep gold to version two
3: yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're looking forward to that as well. Uh, another thing, uh, looking at the sort of the great picture of sharing is caring. So how how are you sharing? How you built this project and all all the technicalities behind? Is there any documentation of it?
8: Yes, it's, uh, it's open source, so the technical part, it's open source, and you can get this and reuse this. Uh, you get it on GitHub, and it's there is also a link in the presentation. And we are happy to share documentation, and we are happy to, um, yeah, to be there to answer questions if you have technical questions. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Um, So, we have this sort of, it was a nice uh, close to our session, I think. Thank you, ladies. Uh, Thank you. And I'd like just to say a couple of things. We've seen uh, a few solutions to problems that I think most people recognize working with Um, open access flows or or open science flows, uh, different ways, different challenges. Uh, It feels like we are getting closer to solutions about that, at least from my point of view, but I'm too deep entrenchedness. Uh, This is also something that we at the Libre Open Access Working Group that I'm chairing from this week and onwards would like to see examples of. We want to know what people are doing in the library so we can facilitate the sharing of good ideas, developing things together, because it seems if we have the same problems, why solve them as Separate uh, lonely islands. Uh, there are a lot of good people out there that might not have time to finalize everything themselves But if we if we help each other out, maybe we can get further with open access monographs with getting more automated flows So we don't put all the uh, strain on the researchers who are already Trying to do their best to f- keep up with all the requirements that th- that we put on them so um with that, it seems like everybody is happy to uh, take a take a <laughs> rest. Your brains for a little while. Uh, there's going to be another meeting uh, that I don't remember now. But thank you so much for coming, and uh, keep up the good conversations.